2: Welcome to Star Talk Radio. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm an astrophysicist at the American Museum of Natural History, where I also serve as the director of the Hayden Planetarium. My co host this week is Eugene Merman. Hello. Eugene, I love having you here. I love being here, Neil. Thank you. Sometimes I go into your place where yes. you have your Eugene Merman comedy festival. Exactly. And sometimes you come in studio with us. I do. Sometimes I will travel uptown. <laughs> All right. good to get you out of your out of your digs down there yeah uh you know this week's show topic is all about salt I know so, oh because you read the notes
3: <laughs> oh yeah, the, the listeners don't know uh, I was informed beforehand, so yeah, we're talking about salt
2: that's the, the white stuff that we all take for granted, yeah, and
3: <laughs> yeah you know. I, I don't take it for granted, I think it's amazing it's Change lives. It was a currency at one point, probably.
2: Yeah, well, we, we're going to get into that. This whole show will orbit the subject of salt. Great. And, of course, it's really cheap now. I remember when I was a kid going uh-huh. to the store. Salt was like the cheapest thing on all shelves. You can get a box. I'll show you how old I am. But you can get a little box of salt for 10 cents. And I thought, it can't be. Every, you know, 10 cents? What? And and it's still cheap, even though it's more yeah. than that today. It's Romans still...
3: would be furious to hear this. I am like, <laughs> that seems reasonable.
2: <laughs> and, you know, in the past, yeah, it was rare and yeah. valuable commodity, a strategic commodity yeah. even.
3: You could use it as a weapon. <laughs> Maybe not. That might be the one thing. Is that one of the 14,000 uses?
2: No. Well, one of them was that you can pour on the wounds of uh, – who's uh, the guy in the movie? Um,
3: of of uh, someone who – I don't know. <laughs>
2: What's I mean, I know that Chuck if you, Norris. Chuck, Chuck <laughs>
3: Norris. Have you put it on Chuck Norris? It was it put on to help him or to hurt him? Because doesn't it sort of clean? Does it have like a cleaning power? Yeah.
2: Well, it's 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 a disinfect. Not a. It's an antibiotic. I mean, yeah. it, it prevents the growth of of microbes but, on right. it. Too. But we'll learn all about that. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to ruin the whole thing. Just so that we're on the same page, the salt that we normally think of and chat about is uh, table salt is sodium chloride. Mm-hmm. Uh, sodium is an element on the periodic table. you remember that yeah. mysterious chart of boxes? in your chemistry class. Chlorine is also there. You put them together. You get sodium chloride. By the way, sodium Mm -hmm. is highly explosive and reactive in the presence of water. And chlorine, each of these will kill you separately. Really? And together, it's some of the most... Delicious. Delicious.
3: If you put sodium in water, it would... Doing. And
2: essentially, you you want to get out of the room when you did that
3: because uh, it, create, it, it like reacts that. violently with the water. I right. hope that no one listening is off doing that.
2: Yeah, it's hard to get a slab of sto- sodium. Is from it hard the to grocery. get sodium? Do you have
3: to break in somewhere. <laughs> Does McDonald's have
2: it? I don't. I've never looked. I I, I don't know. And chlorine is stuff that keeps the, your your you know swimming pools clean and and it's it's quite the disinfectant you put it together it's table salt and huh. it's it's a testament to the extraordinary diversity of what the elements on the periodic table do for us when brought together as as molecules yeah. i mean molecular chemistry is a whole different thing from atomic chemistry it's a whole other world and i
3: doubt it <laughs> No, you're probably right. <laughs> no,
2: it's the same world, but different, different, different Aspects rules. Of it. Uh, different rules, and I happen to know, as an astrophysicist, you make every one of these elements in stars. Mm-hmm. They're forged in the centers of high mass stars that later explode, spreading their enriched guts across the galaxy. Out of which you then make planets and people, and salt just in case you were wondering. I
3: was going to say, is the, is this table salt from an exploding star? And yes, it is. <laughs> it's good to know. The
2: ingredients of table salt come from exploding stars. I'm glad
3: recipes don't say one quarter spoon exploding <laughs> star.
2: <laughs> so what we got here, you know, uh, salt, what's funny about salt is that it's, uh, you know, you go to farms. I don't know if you've been on a farm, if you're a city person, but like <laughs> yeah, there's the salt licks. Yeah. And when I was a kid, I said, ew, who would want to do that? You know? Yeah. And so these these huge herbivores that we sustain on farms, they they they, they need salt. They've got to lick salt as uh-huh. part of their daily diet. And, you know, I said, you know, this, this topic's too big for just me. And what I decided to do was bring in... An expert I invited to my office, Mark Kurlansky. No. He's, he's the author of the book called Salt: A World History.
3: That's not about... to be confused with that movie <laughs> with Angelina Jolie, where she is not salty. That's
2: right. Well, let's check out that clip. Uh, my first clip of my interview with him, just to find out what what role salt has played in human history. Sure. It's hard for anyone today to imagine that salt was so highly valued as it once was. What happened? We throw away salt today. Salt is 25 cents in the store.
4: Well, to begin with, salt didn't have a great deal of value because most civilizations started off being hunter-gatherers and not agricultural And hunter-gatherers don't really need salt. So the the basis of the importance of salt is that we all need sodium and chloride for our bodies to function. But if you're on a mostly red meat diet, you will get all of the salt you need without having any additional salt. But then what happened is that civilizations moved to agriculture Now there's a whole bunch of problems. Salt is needed for caring for the the properties in the soil. It's needed to raise livestock because other mammals, just like us, need sodium and chloride. And before the age of uh, refrigeration and freezing, you really couldn't have a food trade without salt. You know, if you were a dairy farmer and you produce milk and butter and things like that, you could sell them to the immediate area, not too good even there in the summertime. But if you made cheese, which is preserved with salt, you could throw it on the wagon and ship it all over the world. The same was true of meat and fish and vegetables. And basically the entire food trade depended on salt. And in pre-industrial society, that was a very large part of trade. So it's not an exaggeration to say that without salt, you couldn't have an international economy. What you're saying is
2: back then, any food you ate from afar was salty.
4: Yeah, any foreign food or anything that was shipped any kind of distance was salty. People used to eat a lot more salted food than they do now, and it was much saltier. Bacon, for example, the bacon we eat now is sort of salted in a token sort of way because it's kept in the refrigerator. But if you're going to salt bacon so that it can survive without being chilled, it has to be much saltier than that. So salt was a preservative. Salt was the leading way to preserve food. There were some other things, such as smoking. Smoking doesn't work that well unless you use a little salt also. And there was burying in the ground, which also needs a little salt. So most anything you try to do to preserve food involves salt. Eugene, do you bury your food in the ground?
3: I do, I do, with salt. That guy sounds like a saltist. Like, I believe him that it's important, but it's like, it's a little suspicious.
2: And there are other salts. It's not just sodium chloride. There's like saltpeter. It's a major ingredient in gunpowder and other explosives. Mm-hmm. Baking soda. Good.
3: I was hoping that salt could be a weapon.
2: Sodium bicarbonate. I mean, it goes on and on and on. But we got to end this first segment, and we're coming back. And when we come back, I have a special guest who can speak to the role of salt in ancient cultures. This is Star Trek Radio. Welcome back to Star Talk. I'm your host, Mr. Grass Tyson. And welcome again to Eugene Merman. Yeah, Eugene, you, you tweet, is it at Eugene or?
3: Yeah, it's at Eugene Merman.com. <laughs> oh, Eugene Merman. I might have been beaten by just it to, to be just at Eugene. Oh, oh yes. that's too
2: bad. Sorry. Probably by that.
3: Sting. <laughs>
2: okay. So just our topic today is salt. Who would have thought? That salt could be so important in the history of the world, and I could not do this alone. And not that I don't love you, Eugene, but yeah. but I had to bring in some more ammo here. And so, really,
3: because I am a salt expert,
2: <laughs> we combed the halls of the American Museum of Natural History, where we have an entire department of anthropology. And guess who I found there? I found Peter Whiteley. Peter,
0: welcome to Star Talk Radio. Thanks very much. Great to be
2: here. You're an anthropologist with uh, specializing in. North American natives.
0: Native North Americans, yes. Yeah. Especially, oh, okay. especially the Hopi and Zuni and other pueblos in the southwest.
2: Because I brought you on, because salt is not just something you put in your diet. Salt was, uh, is a
0: strategic commodity for
2: people who can't just go to the grocery store and pick it up.
0: Absolutely. Well, in the southwestern pueblos, it was very much of a commodity that people traded back and forth, and that goes back three or 4,000 years. So in the particular places where they find it, like a Zuni salt lake, or the Mansano Salines, uh, east of the Sandia Mountains, they found examples of the, that salt three or four hundred miles away in the archaeological record. Hundred of miles. So they, they would go get it. Absolutely. And, uh, for example, Hopis uh, still uh, have a salt pilgrimage that they go on to the bottom. Still as in still 2000 to this, to this day. Yes, to Which this day. Which one ta- of us will tell them about Costco? <laughs> 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 and very recently they used to go to uh, the bottom of the Grand Canyon and they still go to uh, Zuni Salt Lake to get salt.
2: Oh, so that's right. Because those of you who are up on your geology know, you might ask, well, where does salt come from? Where's a good place? Well, one way is salt water, right? You get a salt water, yeah. either a huge lake that had become salty over the years or ocean. And all you need is to corral off a piece of it and let the sun sort corral of— Corral
3: a piece of the ocean. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: Sorry, I see what you're saying. You, yeah. you you let you let a tide bring in some water, and it comes out, but you trap some of the water as it comes in. Yeah, and some lakes are large enough that they became salty over the years. The um, um,
3: salt lake for one, yeah. just to pick an easy, <laughs> just a
2: pick, just one. a low hanging fruit there. Yeah, yeah, and so, the Baltic Sea, a big lake. <laughs> so there are ways to actually make it. And in my interview with Mark Kolansky, mm-hmm. uh, that we're slotting into this show, uh, he tells us uh, some stories about how you. Fine salt and how you make it and where you get it from. So let's check it out.
4: The cheapest, most efficient way to make salt, if you live in a sunny climate, is to just take seawater, dam it off into pounds, and let it sit there in the sun, and eventually all the water will evaporate. It may take a year but you have a lot of different holding tanks which you rotate, so there's always one that's at crystallization. This is a very efficient, very old way of making salt that hasn't changed in thousands of years and requires very little investment and attracts beautiful birds. Does that mean all salt is sea salt? No, although the majority of table salt is sea salt, which is something Americans don't understand because in America it's not. Americans eat mostly rock salt. There's only a few places left that produce sea salt in the U.S. That wasn't always true, but for one reason or another, most of the sea salt places have gone out of business. And I don't know the difference between rock salt and sea salt. How, well, do, you, how do you just make rock salt? Don't you need a seawater to make rock salt? No, you need a place underground that has salt and a shovel. <laughs> <laughs> so
2: you mined the salt? Yes,
4: yes. Or Well, there's two ways of doing it. The salt deposits that are under the earth, you can either go down there and mine it like you would any other mineral, or you can flood it and pump the water out, which will come out as brine, and then evaporate the brine like you would sea salt. Okay, so what you're saying
2: geologically is that the mineable salt was once salty water deposit where the water had evaporated and left the salt behind.
4: Yeah, most likely these are all places that were ocean at one time. And there's huge deposits in North America and in Europe and in Asia. There's salt under most of the Great Lakes area going you know all the way from the plains to uh, upstate New York. Remind me, are the Great Lakes salty or not? At what point are you big enough to become salty? Well, bigger than the Great Lakes. (laughs) I think at the point at which you're an ocean. You know, this is something that hasn't ever been completely worked out about why seas are salty. It's a little bit mysterious. But the Great Lakes, although there are salt beds under the earth all around the Great Lakes, the Great Lakes are freshwater. So, Peter Whiteley, I
2: got you in this show from the American Museum of Natural History. Uh, your, your Hopi Indians would—so uh, they wouldn't create salt by drying up salt water. You're telling me they actually found salt in the mountains.
0: Well, uh, yeah, the bottom of the Grand Canyon and then of the Salt Lake that's uh, not too far away from Zuni Pueblo, about 50 miles so away. So the Great Salt Lake in Utah. Uh, no, not that one. That's that's even further so, away. Salt, so, salt
3: th- Lake 2? This, <laughs> this,
0: this is a junior version of that. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah.
3: Did it, was it also called Salt Lake?
0: It's called Zuni Salt Lake. Okay. Yeah.
3: Well, as long I, as they add in it. I
2: extrovert. have an embarrassing urban story to tell you. I was flying oh. to California and <laughs> we were flying over Utah, but I wasn't thinking that at the time. I was just looking out the window. And so this huge white area, and I said to myself, wow, that looks like a salt residue, like from a lake that might have been there. That looks like a. Of course, we're flying over Salt Lake City. I mean, I deduce from first principles of science that that was the Great Salt Lake. Salt Lake. But I was obviously that. I mean, once I thought about it. But but I, there I was pumping my my geological <laughs> knowledge into, into.
3: Is that how you fly over the Grand Canyon? You're like, this is a very very big canyon. It feels almost grand in its canyonness.
2: So so other great uh, deposits. So we have. Obviously, the Great Salt Lake in Utah, and you have your, your Salt Lake 2 version, yes. Right. And, uh, of course, the Dead Sea in Israel. What, yeah, I, what, where do you, you
3: can sit up in. Uh, I... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you can sit in it. Like you can, It's so salty, you can sit in
2: it. Have you tried walking on it, though? <laughs>
3: uh, I, I'm oddly weird. It's weird. I can walk on it, but I didn't want to spook people when I was there. <laughs> so,
2: you don't want to fool people into thinking... By you, magic, you're someone other than. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: I can walk on it, but I, but it's purely scientific.
2: You chose not to. So what gets me is that, of course, it's called the Dead Sea because there were no fishes in it. But that's more a measure of the fact that they didn't have a microscope because there are microbes everywhere wherever you have liquid water in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a scientific limitation that it got called the Dead Sea. And also, of course, you uh, you know, there's a, near Detroit. Uh, 400 million years ago, there is an. It, Michigan at the time was warm and it was a, there was a shallow sea. And when the water dried up, it left one of the world's largest salt deposits. And so mining continues to this day in those. In mines. Detroit? <laughs> it's,
3: in near Detroit?
2: Near Detroit, yes. Yeah. And the shafts go down more than 1,000 feet below the surface just to get the salt. I mean, this is extraordinary. The, 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 the extent that people go to to recover this stuff. So, so, so you're a your Hopi tribe. So they, they would get the salt. They knew they needed the salt.
0: Yeah, exactly. And they, would, uh, they went off on long expeditions, uh, which were really r- ritual pilgrimages. Uh, some of them, especially to, uh, to those two places I've mentioned, they have to go through all sorts of ritual preparations. And it's associated with an initiation uh, and so on. So they, it's a very arduous trek down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Wait, but somebody
2: had, to, somebody had to go that far to begin with and find it. Right. And then they pass the information along. Are you saying
3: it's basically like a salt bar mitzvah? Sort of?
4: and, and if you like to think of it that way, yes. I would like that. <laughs> and I'm
3: going to, and I'm going to tell people that's what you said. And, and, and that's,
2: your, that's your next gift at the bar mitzvah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: not the, not the $18,
2: but, uh, but, uh, no. but packets of salt. Exactly.
0: But the information that you're referring to was widely known and shared among prehistoric peoples in the greater southwest, so they all knew where those places were. And they, you know, sacralized it, too. Their Their salt Deities associated with those places, goddesses and gods. And so to on. sacralize is to make it a deity. I like make. that word. That's my first time
2: I've heard that word. It's the first time I've heard it. Sacralize. But it's not going to be Maybe the last... I just invented it. <laughs> I'm going to hear it later when I tell people about it. Well, he just said he might have just invented it. I don't oh. know. <laughs> That's fine. So, I mean, I, my list here is long about all these cultures going back thousands of years. You know, the Chinese in 6,000 B.C. would harvest dry beds along the salty... Uh, how do you pronounce this? Lake Yuchin. Yuchin.
3: I like that you're asking me. Uh, no... <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Neil, close, though. (laughs) That sounds fine. Sounds fine to me.
2: And the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, the Romans, the Celts were mining rock salt in the Austrian Alps as far back as 700 BC. I mean, this this goes on and on. Peter. Yeah, it's global. So what gets me is how people know that they need the salt. Why did they know they need the salt? But the people who were getting scurvy for not having vitamin C didn't know they needed vitamin C.
3: They eventually found out. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's trial and error. Everyone's dying, and then it's like, oh, we should get some salt.
2: Actually, we got to wind down this segment, but when we come back, let's f- learn more about where salt comes from and what its effect is on the history of cultures in the world. Its, it's geopolitical influence knows no bounds. I'm here with Eugene Merman, my favorite stand-up comedian, one of my favorites. Excuse no,
3: me. too late. And Peter Whiteley, <laughs> anthropologist, late. American Museum of Natural
2: history. We'll be right back.
5: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.
2: Welcome back to Star Talk Radio. I am Neil deGrasse Tyson, your host. You know, you can find Star Talk on the web at startalkradio.net. Not only that, you can download us as an iTunes podcast. And we are in the Twitterverse. What other handle? But, of course, at Star Talk Radio. Co-host this week, Eugene Merman. Eugene, good to have you back in studio. And, you know, uh, we're orbiting the show on the subject of salt. Yes. And an interview that I conducted with Mark Kurlansky, author of Salt, A World History. And we got into discussing uh, – that's that's a book about everything about salt, stuff you never thought – existed or was true
3: about salt about salt the secrets of salt the secrets of the salt. working title of that book no one but me knows that
2: <laughs> so uh, he and i discussed some surprising cultural beliefs mm-hmm. involving salt let's check it out
4: i have spent a lot of time working in haiti so i already knew that salt was used to cure zombies which might be to worth- cure zombies or kill zombies no to cure zombies
2: yeah because salt takes away evil uh, okay so in a ritualistic way Salt
4: has tremendous... If somebody has been zombified, you can bring them back to normal with salt. And how do you apply the salt? You sprinkle it on them with a salt shaker? I'm not sure. I have to say I haven't done it. (laughs) But there is this association with salt preventing evil and curing evil because it stops rotting. So in Japanese theater, the stage is sprinkled with salt to chase away bad spirits. And there are lots of examples of salt used for that. Salt in many cultures is brought to a new home for good luck. What's with the salt over the shoulder? The problem with spilling salt is a Middle Eastern thing that comes up a lot in Judaism and in Islam. And that is related to the ability of salt to preserve things. So it seals a bargain. So, for instance, in Judaism, salt is a symbol of sealing what's called the covenant, the agreement between God and Jews. So if you spill salt, it's like the covenant has been broken, and so you have to do something about that. So you get rid of it, chuck it over your shoulder. If you look closely in the painting of the Last Supper, you will see that there is a spilled salt cellar on the table by Judas. I never knew that. That table's got all sorts of interesting details in it.
2: <laughs> Eugene, did you know there was salt? On the
4: table I did not know that of the last I, supper? I didn't know that
3: you could cure zombies. With salt. And that, I wonder how it's ever been tried practically.
2: Well, plots I mean, but it's good to know because of all the apocalypses. The asteroid, you know, we can deflect an asteroid. Virus, yeah, yeah. we can find a cure. But the zombie apocalypse, that was going to be an unbeatable one. Salt. But, but salt is it. Totally. I, I was, <laughs> when he was going to say,
3: i for salt. I was really hoping that somebody would think that salt could get you pregnant. <laughs>
2: right. But
3: <that's, laughs> you, you can't have everything.
2: We have in studio one of our spe- uh, special guests, uh, Peter Whiteley. He's a curator of... Ethnology, I think, is the official title there at the American Museum of Natural History. He's a a cross department colleague of mine, actually. And thanks for coming in. He's an expert on the culture of the the Hopi tribes and other sort of Southwest Native American cultures. And you and you and Apparently salt was a big deal to them.
0: Absolutely, yes, so, because since they have to go so far to get it, uh, it, uh, it had it achieved a great deal of importance in their culture. So, so more than just the nutritional value of the stuff. Exactly. So it became symbolically valued and uh, there are uh, deities th- who are named after salt. There are, there are salt goddesses and salt gods and such. So well. there's the Epsom salt deity. I, guess, <laughs> and <you've
2: got> the- <laughs>
0: I don't think I heard about that one. But. How far would they walk? Did you say fifty miles or more? Fifty miles and more. The to the distance to the Grand Canyon from the Hopi mesas is about hundred miles. So why not just
2: move there? I mean, the the Native Americans were known to be nomadic in many ways. Well, that's
0: right. There there are some.
2: There are some. I would move to where the salt (laughs) was. Excuse me. That's what I would do. (laughs) That's that's a good plan.
0: There are there are of course Native peoples who live at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, like the Havasupai and in the past you say that
2: like that was just so obvious that what an idiot some people we do <laughs> but there's not room for
3: everybody so some people like to walk plus it's like if you move there then you get rid of the sp- spiritual meaningfulness that's why we don't live at Disney World we
2: walk to it <laughs> okay. or it would have no meaning to it I guess the, the pilgrimage it gives it meaning
0: exactly there you go well, yeah. this,
2: this goes way back I mean it was a commodity for a while was it also a commodity among the, the Native American tribes?
0: absolutely so uh, even today you'll find Zunis who bring Zuni salt to Hopi and they will exchange it for the same measure of ground blue cornmeal. That goes back a long, long way. Again,
3: and that's a s- symbolic thing that they're doing.
0: Well, uh, it's it's a nu- nutritional thing too, but it, it, it represents the contributions that each have to each other's. Again, right. yeah, of course. they haven't found Costco. You were right. right.
2: <laughs> well, no. What I'm asking is,
3: this is more of like a, uh, a spiritual, like a, a recognition of each other's value, more than it is like we need blue cornmeal. <laughs> well, and this that, is the only way we can get <laughs> it.
0: Well, that, that's right. And there's a special celebration of this particular kind of salt that Hopis call it by a particular term, ba which means literally water salt, and mm-hmm. that's. That's something that they value more highly than what you get from Costco. You know it's yes.
2: weird you look back Costco. <laughs> you look back a Chinese emperors had a salt monopoly. And 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 the Venetian government controlled the price and export of salt through its ports through the through the lagoon, and uh, the Erie Canal was called the ditch that salt built because it was financed by a tax on salt. I mean, it's amazing. Just you go down this list, and 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 did you know Romans salted their vegetables, and hence the word salad. Oh. Salad for salt, and 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 the salary comes from the, the word
3: salt. S- you now have reached where it sounds like it's like an Illuminati conspiracy <laughs> about salt. Where like, did you know everywhere in history, salt was there making it was decisions, there voting for the president? Salt.
2: When we come back, more of my interview with Mark Kurlansky, the author of Salt, and my in studio guest, Peter Whiteley. We'll be right back.
5: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.
2: Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices
3: at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and
4: not guaranteed. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear consumer cellular when freedom calls we're here to answer
3: call us at 1-888-FREEDOM half the cost savings based on cost of consumer cellular single line five gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan
2: offered by t-mobile and verizon may 2023 welcome back to star talk radio i'm neil degrasse Tyson. i'm here with my co-host eugene merman and a special studio guest peter whiteley he's a uh, uh, a curator of ethnology at the American Museum of Natural History. And today's topic is salt, salt as a, as a cultural geopolitical force. Yeah. And I've slotted in here an interview that I had in my office with Mark Kurlansky, and he wrote the book Salt, A World History. And he told me how salt contributed to the science of geology, which I hadn't thought about, but in retrospect, clearly, that would be the case. If you care where your salt is, you're going to learn about what Earth did to get it there and what you're going to have to do to get it from the Earth, and also what role salt— what, what, what role geology played in devaluing salt itself. So let's, let's check another clip out from that interview with Mark Kerlansky. Mark
4: Kurlansky The whole science of geology grew up on salt geology was basically the science of finding salt just a sec how does the need for geologists to help you find salt compare
2: with the need for geologists to help people find iron or any other valuable ore
4: well it's very much the same thing it was a very valuable ore and that's why this science grew up looking for it until the beginning of the 20th century And then a discovery was made that there was a relationship between salt and oil. The reason for this relationship is that very solid deposits of salt, which are called salt domes, are impenetrable. So organic material that pushes up against salt won't go any further, and it'll be trapped there, and that's how oil is made. When this was discovered, originally in Pennsylvania and then in Texas, the science of geology became about looking for salt so that you could find oil and went back to all of these places in the Middle East where salt domes had been discovered and found oil. And today, geology is very much focused on finding oil. But that only values the oil. It doesn't devalue the salt. Well, it did devalue the salt because it stepped up the search for salt. And it was discovered that there was just much, much more salt in the earth than anybody had ever imagined. Just these huge, huge deposits. I mean, from Ireland across northern England into Scandinavia, from eastern France across Germany and Austria into Poland, you know, from Detroit to Syracuse, Uh, just huge. So that, for one thing, lessen the value of salt. But at the same time, refrigeration and freezing were being developed, which is actually my next book. I'm working on a book, a biography of Clarence Birdseye. Clarence Birdseye ruined the salt industry by developing commercial freezing. So, Peter, (laughs) do these Native American
2: tribes, do they, uh, part of the salt was nutritional, but also to was it it was also to preserve food over the winter months and, but there are other ways to preserve today, and and you you study the relatively recent history of these tribes. Why are they still doing it the old-fashioned way? Just put them in a condo and give them a refrigerator. Uh,
0: <laughs> well, they they like the way it tastes. They like that that particular kind of salt that I was talking about. But of course, they have many other methods of preserving meat and fish and so forth in, in the past, as well as in the present. So you get, get deer meat and smoke it or dry it, or clams and uh, salmon and halibut on the on the north west coast they spent um, many hours drying these in smokehouses and so forth especially speci- for that purpose
2: i, I have uh, in-laws from the pacific northwest and yeah you know, there's a whole culture of the dried the dried meat and it tastes great and it's very and it's very high calorie actually and so you don't need much of it to to keep you going through the day yeah
0: it's great stuff
2: so the, the, the so what i find interesting is just how Salt had all these secondary effects on the rest of the conduct of cultures. I mean, that's extraordinary, and and is it, what I what I wonder though is, uh, has salt been devalued in the? In the Native American community, because of its the full access, are those deities still operating in the cultures? The deities you spoke of in an because earlier segment,
3: of all the salt domes in Europe. Yeah, <laughs> it was like they're all over France and Ireland.
2: Yeah, that was like like the like the the, the military map of, of Napoleon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
3: had all the salt, and then also in Detroit. I'm glad they have something, even if it's salt.
0: Napoleon's last stand in Detroit. <laughs> I think uh, t- traditionally oriented people still pay attention to those things, and again, they do. value value the, the native salt more than the commercial salt very much so into the, into the present.
3: Is it, is it actually a better quality?
0: I think salt? it takes better and Hopis talk about it as Basqualwa uh, much more flavorful, much uh, much sweeter um, mm-hmm. than the commercial salt.
2: It sounds like you speak Hopi. We'll have to get back to that after this segment. <laughs> a it's, tiny bit. it's a little bit'll huh? we'll, 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 and you speak Klingon, don't you I speak Russian. <laughs> we'll get back when we come back on Star Talk Radio more on the topic of salt. Right back. Welcome back to Star Talk Radio. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm here in studio with Eugene Merman and a special guest and Ethno curator of ethnography did i get that right <laughs> yes yes uh, peter whiteley at the american museum of natural history specializing in southwest the uh, native americans of the southwest the relatively recent history uh, that they've enjoyed and this topic is salt and what role it's played in cultures and how they've treated each other and how they've how they've developed and uh, we also have clips from an interview we have the last of several clips of my interview with mark kurlansky the author of salt a world history. Why don't we start off with that clip where he talks about salt not simply as being important for your survival, but it was so important for survival that, in fact, it became some people st- married it <laughs> became a strategic commodity. Let's check it out.
4: Tell me, the history of war and salt. Is that a book unto itself? In many ways, actually, because uh, salt was also used to cauterize wounds, so an army that didn't have salt was in trouble. But you get examples like the Union Army in the Civil War. The Union Army had a strategy of preventing the South from getting salt. They couldn't get northern salt because there was an embargo, and wherever they found a salt work, they destroyed them. Sometimes they went back repeatedly and destroyed them. So that the South was in desperate shortage of salt during the entire Civil War, which uh, created a food shortage in wintertime.
2: Wow. So the control of salt became a major military tactic.
4: Yes. And salt has often been regarded as strategic. In British government policy, it tells you something about the British government. They were always more concerned with salt as a strategic commodity than they were with it as a commercial commodity. Queen Elizabeth I warned the English people of their dangerous dependency, exact quote, dangerous dependency on French sea salt.
2: So salt of yesterday is oil of today.
4: That's right. You know, when you look at salt and oil, there's a great lesson there. It's actually one of the secret reasons why I wrote the book. What you think is valuable and what you're willing to fight and die for, is it really valuable? Value is an illusion and it shifts all of the time. And I am absolutely certain that someday oil will be worth about what salt is worth today. Some wishful thinking there.
3: It's certainly possible, but it doesn't mean at the time you shouldn't go to tons of wars over oil and salt.
2: I liked, I'd i forgotten that, yes, you can use salt to cauterize wounds. And, yeah. of course, Rambo did that. In... I
3: still do it. <laughs> if I get into a knife fight, I go right to some salt.
2: No, was it Rambo? No, no, no. He actually took the gunpowder out of a bullet. And oh, ignited and it. it in the wound in his side to cauterize yeah. the wound. So that was that was the manly thing that he did. Yeah, I
3: wouldn't do that. I would just put salt <laughs> on it. I'm not a lunatic.
2: So this goes way back for the, for the military. The Roman army was sometimes paid in salt. And the origin origin of the world of the word salary, mm-hmm. salary, salary, salad, <laughs> and salads. All of it. All of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And 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 of course, Sally was a very salty lady. <laughs> and of course, the expression is he worth his worth his weight in salt. You know right. And what's odd, because when I first learned of salt, I heard that it, like, gave you high blood pressure and killed you. So, when someone said he's the salt of the earth, it's like, ooh, you must not like the person. <laughs> I, mean, I came way out of out of sync with when, when all of this uh, was um, – all this vocabulary was established. And, of course, one of the, one of the major causes – there's several, of course – but one of the major causes of the French Revolution was the salt tax. We never talk about that because we can't no. even picture it. We can't even think about it. At I think time, we can picture it. Did you know the the French prisons were full of people convicted of salt
3: smuggling? Salt smuggling? Oh, was trying to avoid being salt taxes.
2: Uh, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Well, That's I mean, what we do that today. There was right. also – tea was also very important. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I guess I think it's perfectly reasonable salt was so important. One of the
2: first things they did at the end of the revolution was to spend the salt tax. And, of course, famously portrayed in the film Gandhi, but what Gandhi actually did was one of his steps to fight for India's independence – from mm-hmm. Great Britain was uh, he, he was concerned about his policies concerning salt. And then, uh, the, the he, what was that? That march to the sea mm-hmm. where he made salt without the oversight of the British. And that was viewed as almost as a, a, a strong act of defiance. And here we look at it and say, what's he doing? He's making salt. What do you care? The British? <laughs> it's like, well,
3: chill him, out. Let him have some salt. <laughs> Whoever consult- controls the salt controls the world. <laughs> That's
2: right.
3: A movie I'm going to be working on.
2: So, Peter, we're running the short on time. Any, any concluding comments you have about this whole business?
0: Well, I think that uh, that uh, concept of salt being a strategic resource is, is very widely present. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of some societies in Papua New Guinea where there are specialized salt producers and salt makers. They have a, you know, they'll, be, they'll have a high role in, in the local hierarchy and they get to be responsible for trading salt uh, in a very controlled fashion among different uh, groups of neighboring tribes.
2: So it's, it's still going on. It's uh, still there. Absolutely. So, yep. Still there. And yeah, so. and and like I said, it would be interesting if oil one day became the salt of the past.
3: Yes. And I can't wait for a new thing to replace it that we go to war over. <laughs> I just hope I get to control it.
2: <laughs> well, we got to wrap up this first hour of Star Talk. There's a lot more to discover in part two of our show about the science of salt. And in that second hour, that's when we get into – the health considerations of salt and what it means to us physiologically. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to Star Talk Radio. Eugene, thanks for being in this first hour. And Peter Whiteley, thanks for joining us uh, in, in this first hour of Star Talk Radio. Star Talk is brought to you in part by a grant from the National Science Foundation. As always, I'm compelled to tell you that until next time, keep looking up. Neil deGrasse Tyson signing off. When we come back, I'll be in the Cosmic Crib to talk more about evolution with Bill Nye, the science guy, who just wrote a best-selling book on the subject called Undeniable. Stay tuned. Bill, thanks for coming into the Cosmic Crib.
6: It's so good to be in the Crib. Cosmic
2: Crib of Star Talk. Is, is just my office. It's code for my office at the Hayden Planetarium. Uh, I'm here with Bill Nye, a recent, uh, a recent expatriate from... Los Angeles now live in downtown Manhattan yes sir yes uh, welcome to New York and, it's great to be here uh, and I was just browsing the New York Times and your name showed up on the bestseller list
6: check me out is this
2: is your first time I think on the best uh, yes
6: list? it's my first time uh, yes <laughs> okay. uh, I hope maybe there'll be more times but that's pretty good
2: <laughs> well congratulations making the bestseller list thank you and uh, the title of the book is undeniable and I, I I, was happy to read a, a galley of the book and offer a blurb for the That's book.
6: very nice. It's uh, an excellent
2: May blurb. I read my blurb? Do you have a copy of the uh, uh, book? I have a
6: copy. I, I want, want to read, read my blurb a little, just, just uh, to set noise. the stage
2: here. Mm-hmm. I love Velcro I, noise. Uh,
6: I came here by bicycle, riding through Manhattan, okay. enjoying the adventure. you are of that this. green. Well, not only that, the bicycle's faster. I can be. Yeah. And here we go and i like the uh, i like the challenge it's like a video game where the stakes are really high
2: yeah a video game where you could end up dead not other, right. not Absolutely. anyone else here's my blurb for undeniable the subtitle of it is evolution and the science of creation my blurb and i'm i'm honored that it was the top blurb
6: and and it is the shortest one which i, I know is a source i, of I never
2: to. want to be the longest blurb on a book jacket heck no with his charming breezy narrative style bill empowers the reader to see the natural world as it is, not as some would wish it to be. He does it right, and as I expected, he does it best.
6: Bill! I love you, man! Bill! That's really (laughs) nice. I put my heart and soul into this No,
2: no, it's good. So, what I liked about the book was that, unlike many other books that try to be expository in some scientific topic or another, you didn't even go there. You were just sitting down with you
6: on the couch, and you're telling story. Uncle Bill is telling stories. Well, this is the thing about first person stories. First of all, this is how humans find patterns and remember things based on stories. Uh, you did this Cosmo series, I think. I've heard of it. It's yeah. full, of, full of stories. Full of stories. Yeah, storytelling was a big part of that. It's, it's very important. And then the other just feature of this if I say in the book, I remember when I met the gorilla named Ivan, the reader can't say, No, you don't. Yeah, I do. yes, I do remember when I met Ivan, yeah. And uh, so that gives it a property that... That's has a great a multi- sentence, too, by the way. Uh, well, yeah, unlike many readers of this book, Ivan was a mountain gorilla. <laughs> I don't know how many mountain gorillas... I would say have... most readers of the book. Yeah, yeah. well, <laughs> it's not clear how many mountain gorillas have enjoyed my book, but <laughs> Ivan was an influential guy for me because he, you could tell that he was uh, unhappy in the, or not, uh, he was bored, I think is the word, in the Tacoma enclosure, in Tacoma, Washington, but he had it kind of going on, feeling pretty good when he was in Atlanta. He had girl gorillas digging his gorilla-ness, and you could tell in his posture, in his uh, manner. Well, this is a gorilla that you observed in two different zoos. Two different zoos. So one of them wasn't really a zoo. Uh, uh-huh. It was a, in, from the old days, the bad old days.
2: The kind of facility where Planet of the Apes derive.
6: Yeah, right.
2: Where they break out and take over. Okay. And so
6: my claim uh, in this in this one passage, which is a bit of a digression here, uh, <clears throat> is that your posture, your gait, your uh, your manner is deep within us. No matter, it's common. to Did you to feel our
2: you had a special capacity to observe this, being a primate yourself?
6: Well, that's the other thing. Then we we changed the subject to uh, VIP. Now, Vip is a gorilla at the Woodland Park, as we record. I didn't the, know you had all these primate relationships. Well, we'll out there. go with, that's two. They're two. Then my old boss, I'm not sure where he would fit in on that tree. <laughs> okay. We thought about an old boss joke in every chapter, but we we held back from that. <laughs> Wisely, my edi- I would say. Editors and I. But the um, Vip was looks at you. He sits next to the glass. And just he's got an acre. Or pick a number. He's got many. He's got a hectare out there. where We could wander around and be gorilla and eat gorilla things and do stuff. But he sits right by the glass and he stares at you. He stares at you. What's the deal, man? What's the deal? I can. My people are behind the glass, and look. And we're big and strong. Look at you. You're you're skinny. I want to break you over my knee. And I and I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> but he's just. So thinking, this is
2: the this is the thought bubble yeah, over yeah. the gorilla's oh, head. The,
6: yeah, you can see it in his eyes. And so, um, I met an actress uh, who plays the orangutan in the Planet of the Apes movies, which oh, The okay. wise old orangutan. Mm-hmm. And she apparently goes to or by all accounts goes to the Woodland Park Zoo, sits there with the orangutan. In and the where's app- Woodland Park? In Seattle, Seattle. Sorry, the Seattle Zoo. They take a meeting, and they look at each other, they paint together, they do things. And I asked her, I asked her, is VIP still there? And she said, oh, oh, he's mean. So that's just an independently confirmed uh, account. But neither here nor there. The book I consider a primer, a primer, on evolution. It's very important for everybody to realize that living things make more copies of themselves than can uh, succeed. They we reproduce more than are going to live. Well, humans don't really do that. Well, there's 7.2 billion of us right now, and our natural (laughs) proclivities. And so, and there was a time
2: actually when you'd have seven kids and three were. Well,
6: not only that, there is a a technical and important point. Many, many, many more eggs are fertilized. Human eggs are fertilized than become people. And this is an important point when you're going to start passing laws and prosecuting people. Based on their eggs not attaching, uh, and so it's a, it's a, it's an important thing to understand. And by the way, the religions who make certain claims about their understanding of conception wouldn't have anything to say if it weren't for not for science and microscopes. Then the other thing, another thing about evolution that's really important for people to understand is uh, sexual selection. That is to say. We don't. We know it's like sexual selection. Well, but you. But people of all the things you have to define on this show, I think that would not. No, be but one I mean, it's selection within a species. And mm-hmm. why do you do it? What's the point? If you're a dandelion or a sea jelly or a barnacle, <clears throat> why do you bother with it? Why don't you just pop yourself off like any self-respecting bacterium? I've never been a barnacle. Yeah, I, uh, it would have been a big change for you, <laughs> and so. <laughs> These are just important things to understand. And then I go on about... What's so uh, the value of sexual selection is? Uh, well, apparently, the best theory right now is <clears throat> your enemy out there, if you're a meta-organism, multicellular organism, your enemy is not lions and tigers and bears, which, can, of course, can be troublesome. Uh, your enemy is germs and parasites. That's what will kill you. And uh, to show you how deep this fear is within us, look at Ebola, how people and uh, quite reasonably terrified. And so along this line, uh, understanding the process of evolution allows us to craft medicines and medical procedures that allow our species to succeed. It allows our species to succeed specifically to us and to our crops and farm animals and everything else that we depend on. Evolution is the main idea in all of biology,
2: and but your title is very confrontational.
6: Well, it's we not. Did, oh, here's an
2: account of evolution. It's undeniable.
6: Well, yeah, we we yeah, had. Go on, day. meet me outside. We. It's exactly right. You're ready so, to like have a fight. Yes, but so, by the way, the
2: book does not read that way, <laughs> but the title does. Well, thank you. Uh, I think. The book is very breezy uh, and informative at the same time. And those two words are hardly ever in the same sentence.
6: I love you, man. Uh, <laughs> so we did have, I did step inside for a fight with the guy in Kentucky. Uh, and I took him Ken on. Ken Ham. Le- lectern to lectern. The head of the, the- Answers in Genesis
2: creation science museum now Crea-
6: yeah okay and the word museum i'm always uh, i always have difficulty with there are no artifacts there okay it's just animatronic robots and uh, and uh, some dioramas theme parky kind it's of thing. complete theme parky mm-hmm. and uh they i think are unabashed about that and where they um, where they may have crossed the line is now you have to testify to your christian faith even though, by the way, the debate was about, what I my understanding of the Bible was about the Old Testament, that the Jesus guy never got involved. And then- um, Jesus. Yeah, J- Jesus, right.
2: When spoken in Western English language.
6: <laughs> and, then, and then the other thing is you can't be gay, you can't be homosexual to work there. Mm. And you can do that apparently if you have a private, or they're, they're trying to make it so you can do that. But you can't take tax dollars and do that. So we'll see what happens to them. So your book, you're happy with how it's come out? Oh, man, I'm just very pleased with it. And Yeah, that, every chapter is a story
2: of some kind or another.
6: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's how I feel
2: like I got to know you better by having wow. read it. And, and you're and... still talking to me. Right.
6: <laughs> no, uh, I worked really hard on it, everybody. Remember and your opening sentence is what? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. And this is true. I do remember very well watching bumblebees. And just thinking, I mean, a bumblebee is a small thing uh, by human standards, but... Because compare the size of their wings to how small they are. How in the world is this possible? Furthermore, in Ripley's Believe It or Not, they stated categorically that bumblebees should be unable to fly. They are aerodynamic misfits. And I remember even as a kid thinking, Dude, Mr. Ripley, they're flying. (laughs) The problem has got to be with the theory, not the bee. And it's interesting, it wasn't even until pick a number, 15, 20 years ago, that people really understood how bees fly. It's quite an extraordinary motion. And bee wings are very different structurally from bird wings, very different structurally from bat wings, yet they have converged on solving the problem of flight. And this is another evolutionary principle which I cover in the book. So all the
2: big evolutionary elements are there, but told through this storytelling style. So uh, people would uh, acquire a comfort level, I think, with the topic. I'm hoping. And maybe go on to more advanced books, would you imagine?
6: Uh, Yes, sure. Or just have a deep understanding and especially an appreciation for the process that was discovered by Russell Wallace and Charles Darwin. They didn't make it up. They found it in nature. And that is a, a worthy thing. And it fills me with reverence to know that we are part of this extraordinary process that goes back four and a half billion years. And speaking of four and a half billion, I am very proud of the timeline. I think I have a good way to try to get your head around
2: deep time. Deep time, time deeper than anything the human experience has recorded. (laughs) Yes, Yes.
6: and speaking of time,
2: we're done here, Bill. Thanks for being in the Cosmic Crib. Thank you, as always. And like I say, I bring, I bring greetings from the entire StarTalk community. And say, Welcome to New York.
6: Thank you. It's great to be here. All right, I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson.
2: Bye.